You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms and the new 110 Ultralight. At about six pounds, the 110 Ultralight is designed to combat elevation and the elements while maintaining the performance of a factory blueprinted Savage 110 action. The carbon fiber wrapped stainless steel barrel makes it durable and lightweight. The rifle comes equipped with the Savage AccuFit technology, so that means it's adjustable and it comes in a variety of calibers. The 308, the 270, the 28 Nosler, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 30 out 6, and much more. If you want to find out more information about the 110 Ultralight, visit SavageArms.com. Dan Picard, Adventure Bowhunter, is on the show. We discuss elk hunting multiple states, elk hunting strategies, his archery setup for hunting elk, and more. I hope you enjoy the show. You are listening to Tales from the Field, presented by Outdoor Edge. Stories, tips, tactics, and in-depth conversations coming to you from industry leaders. Let's get into the show. I am your host, Zach Harold, and today we have Dan Picar on the podcast. Really looking forward to diving into a little bit of his background and then talking elk hunting. I mean, I don't know where the hell the summer went, but here we are. It is half, almost halfway through August, and September is right around the corner. I mean, I'm going uh, to Utah for an elk hunt. Uh, the 22nd or something like that and so elk hunting's here um how's it going today dan good good another day in paradise like you said summer's almost over it's hard to say but uh you still have a lot to do before august 15th rolls around <laughs> i isn't that crazy i mean uh some people are are you know nevada opens august 10th and it's just it's crazy to think that it's it's already here <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I, all the scouting that I'm, I plan on doing, I'm going to get some of it done, but I'm just running out of time before all these hunts start up. So <laughs> turning and a burning. Right. Yeah. That that's, you know, I, I definitely want to dive into, uh, you know, discuss scouting and things like that. But first I kind of want to know just a little bit about yourself, Dan, like where, when did you get started into hunting and is it, is it, you know, something that's kind of passed down or, um, is it, is it on the flip side, is it passed down, but you kind of took hunting to the next level by making it a career? Um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah, so my family was a, a very outdoors-oriented family growing up, so I was, um, you know, immersed into it immediately and um, fishing at two years old and, you know, shooting 22s at four or five years old. And uh, so I started early, and I, I got lucky in that uh, my folks uh, purchased a place in 1990 in northwest Montana, and we grew up in the country. And so... Uh, we were hunting from the front porch, you know, and we're bordering forest service. So we had all this uh, range to roam and, and uh, we hunted everything from squirrels to uh, raccoons and of course coyotes and skunks and everything else that got into the chicken coop. And, uh, <laughs> and then of course, big game in the fall. So dad always took us on hunts uh, when we were super young, uh, mostly deer hunting. Um, when we got a little older uh, and, and started hunting, man, I was just thinking about this the other day. I think we used to each draw three antelope tags in Montana. You'd get, uh, either sex and two Dauphin tags. And we did that for a, a solid 10 years every year growing up when we were kids. Um, so, you know, rifle hunting was mostly the name of the game. My dad did do some bow hunting on our property there where we grew up. Uh, but it was mostly rifle hunting and shooting and kind of the, the rifle realm of everything. And um, I didn't really get into archery and bow hunting until I was probably 14 when I shot like a white-tailed doe was my first big game animal. But uh, kind of took it from there. And um, me and my brother got into hunting elk and it it, it really came down to one experience when you know, I was probably 14 or 15 and me and my brother were out elk hunting in September with our bows and didn't really know what we were doing, but we had a, <laughs> a close encounter with a, a big bull elk on the side of the mountain. And then I think the next week we, uh, we called in a big bull moose that came into 10 yards and we had no idea this big bull moose came in and, you know, you got a bow in your hands and about dropped him because, you know, <laughs> like, you? But, but those just close encounters with big game was a little bit different than anything I had encountered before as a rifle hunter. Right. And so that really solidified the passion of, of man, I just got to keep doing this and hearing elk bugle and, and them being up close. And it, it, it hooked me from the beginning. And so that's kind of where I, I took off with it. And me and my brother kind of took it to the next level. And my dad, he, he still bow hunts a little bit, but he's a rifle guy. So he didn't really get too much into bow hunting. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what, uh, before we get into the elk hunting and things like that, uh, what, what kind of, you know, steps or what did your process look like to go from, uh, you know, not really knowing what to do or what to expect, especially with a bow. Cause I think every bow hunter has been there, obviously. Um, so yep. what did your process look like going from that to maybe where you are today, where now you do basically all the work on your bow, you build your own arrows, you test stuff out, you know, who did you reach out to and how did you go from, you know, novice to where you are today, uh, especially with your, like your knowledge base. Right, right. Um, a lot of self-learning. Um, I, I hung around bow shops a fair amount and, and kind of learned tuning. Um, of course, when I was a teenager, 
magazines and internet was, I guess, just getting going. And so, um, you know, forums online, that was a, a big uh, learning resource for me on archery specific information. And I did a lot of just learning on my own um, through throughout that time and on forums. And if I had a question, you know, I could go on a forum and ask a question or do a forum search and I could find answers. And, and a lot of it was just trial and error too, like on how to tune a bow. Uh, I, str- I struggled for a lot of years playing with, you know, the old bows that the old wheeled cam bows or lack of cam. They're just wheeled bows that were, that broke over. And, and, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about timing or anything. So I'd pick up a used bow and it was out of time. And I remember about pulling my hair out, trying to get a, uh, an arrow to tune out of some of those old bows when I didn't know what I was doing. But it kind of evolved from when I was younger, I, I really took a close look at, at just all the technicalities of everything and all the tuning types and all the information that was out there. And it took me a while to kind of wade through everything and figure out what actually mattered, what actually got my hunting bow set up like tuned and ready and shooting good for hunting. And yeah, I think it's, it's just since I started such a long time ago and all that self-learning. And, and then after I graduated college, I went right into being a hunting guide and that really helped. And I've always been a believer in experience is the best teacher. And, you know, you can shoot targets in 3D and, and all that stuff, but that really doesn't prepare you for a hunting situation for hunting situations and shot opportunities on live animals. It's just so different. And so my mentality was, I just have to do this as much as possible. If I want to get good at it, it's, it's just like experience. And I say this all the time on in magazine articles or any other seminars that I do, but practice doesn't help you for the game. It, 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 um, it's an old Allen Iverson quote. If you ever remember basketball or follow basketball, but yeah, he's, he's talked to some reporters and, and they wanted to talk about practice and he's like, practice. Let's talk about the game, man. You get better by playing the game. Practice only does so much for you. And right. so it's, it's just like anything. If, if you want to be a good three point shooter, you got to go shoot a lot of three pointers reading a book or shooting free throws or doing layups. Isn't going to make you a great three point shooter. Right. And so, yeah, that's, that was just kind of the basic mentality. So I just, it, it was a challenge for me growing up and it was so difficult. I didn't kill a bull with a bow until I was 18 or 19. It took me like four years of hard hunting in Northwest Montana to you know, get it done on public land with a bow. And so those were some hard years of learning, but man, that, those elk are smart up in Northwest Montana. There's not a lot of elk and hunting in that country really prepared me for hunting everywhere else because I, I haven't encountered a hunt anywhere in Idaho, Montana, Colorado, uh, Wyoming, that is as difficult as Northwest Montana is on a general tag. So all these other hunts just kind of became easier for me. There was just easier. There's more elk, more country. 
that had elk and you could see them. And so uh, just just growing up in, in those hard to hunt places, just super difficult to be successful up there prepared me for success in the future. And then as I was a guide, getting on all those kills, basically, it's just one of those things. The more experience you have getting in on elk and and getting elk killed, it just, after one, they just become easier and easier and easier. And by the time you're guiding and, you know, 20 years later and 48 elk later, it just becomes easier and easier. And so it's just an experience thing. And that's just kind of probably what led me to the job was just, you know, it's all I focused on for several years there in my 20s. That's all I did. And being immersed in the, the guiding world and prepared me for you know, where I am today. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, I, how did you guide in, in Montana or did you guide in Wyoming? Where, where did you guide? Yep. Yep. So I was in Montana, mostly in Paradise Valley and out west of Bozeman. Cool. Um, so yeah, most of my guiding has been in Montana, South Central Montana there. I got you. I got you. So, yeah. um, kind of a little bit off topic, but w- was, uh, was getting a position with Eastman's, is that what moved you into Wyoming? Yes, totally. totally. Cool. Hey, that, yeah. I think that's a good reason to move, right? You'd get to do something that you love. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And I was, you know, kind of the guide life and it's more seasonal work. And I was working on the ranch that I was guiding on there at Doe Mountain. And so I, I was just mostly seasonal work. And, and after a couple of years of guiding and I met Jordan Brashears and started filming for him and hunting with him and, and he'd worked um, for Eastman at the time for a few years already. And, and so that, that kind of got me, um, you know, the connection to, you know, meet Guy and Ike and, and do some work for them. And then they yeah, got me down here full time. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, so kind of diving into elk hunting and your season and, and scouting, um, uh, first, uh, obviously kind of in order of what you most likely do first is you do the research and then you probably scout if you can. Right. So, um, uh, on typically do you do you hunt multiple states a year for elk or do you try and focus just on wyoming uh what do you typically do yeah so you know i play the tag game of course and apply for all the western states <laughs> right and usually don't draw anything but <laughs> me neither um, <laughs> <laughs> well of course my best odds are here in wyoming as a resident i'm drawing tags so um, yeah, I, I, when I hunt elk, I, uh, always try to have at least two elk tags in my pocket, whether that's, um, of course a Wyoming general at the minimum and an Idaho general or a, a Montana general. Uh, so I always try to have two, um, it, I sometimes have had three in the past. It depends on the year and what I draw, but out of everything, I prefer to hunt elk. And so that's what I try to focus on the most and get tags for the most are elk in um, all the states that I can, but, uh, you know, you draw deer and antelope tag somewhere. And so you just kind of have to plan around those and your schedule slowly builds. And then like my brother and, and guy, they drew some quality elk tags in Montana this year. So I'm going to go hunt with them and do some filming with them in September. And so I'm not hunting for myself all the time, but 
if, if I'm not hunting for myself, I'm hunting with somebody and filming for beyond the grid or for the TV show. Gotcha. Uh, as, as the season is, is rolling around or better yet, I guess, once you find out the type of tags, uh, you have and for what state, um, what what kind of goes into play next? You know, you mean let's let's say you you drew you, you didn't draw Wyoming, so you have an over the counter tag in Wyoming, and then let's just say that our luck is it holds true. So you you also have an over the counter tag in Idaho. Um, what kind of goes next? Are you typically diving into research, or do you then try and go? scout some more and maybe some places that you've already spent some time in either state what you know what what's kind of the next step yeah usually if if i apply for a tag specifically or you know get a tag for a specific area say in idaho i usually have have some sort of intel on that area already and that could be from you know i deer hunted that unit and i saw a bunch of elk in September, right before September. So I was like, Oh man, I, I want to elk hunt this unit. Or maybe a friend has hunted it in the past and was like, Hey, you should go in here since you like bow hunting. I don't like, I don't bow hunt. So go in here and, and bow hunt these elk. There's all sorts of elk in here in September. And so that's just a couple examples of, I have some bit of evidence or Intel that, you know, tells me that there's going to be some, some animals in there to hunt. And so that's kind of where I start off with, and man, I mean, if I don't draw a tag and, and hunt a general, there's usually always plenty of elk on these places. And, and once you kind of have an idea of how to find elk and where to hunt them, you kind of look for those areas. And, you know, whether it's above tree line or, you know, the oak brush country, the brush country or the desert, uh, you can pretty much find elk anywhere, but you kind of find your style that you look for. And then you, you get tags in areas that, uh, cater to your style and yeah, it kind of just builds from the hair. Do you, um, when say it's, say it is a general Wyoming, cause that's the, you know, the easiest for both of us to relate to, uh, do you try and find, uh, new areas and, or every year, or you just kind of take your core area and start to expand that, um, or do you start from scratch and go somewhere, you know, completely somewhere else in Wyoming? <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually a really good question. So I have a couple core areas that I know is going to have elk in it, or I know they're going to be somewhere close and I'll kind of have those. And, and sometimes I'll just hunt those areas depending on my schedule and not even explore anymore. But every year on the generals, I, I try to explore two to three new places. And, you know, a lot of that, you know, when I'm deer hunting, I, I gather a lot of intel early in September. And so a lot of areas where I deer hunt, there's elk too. And so that helps a lot when my deer hunting just kind of cross pollinates into elk scouting as well. Right. But if, you know, I've gone into areas where, man, it just looks great and great country and, and the topography set up good for bow hunting. And I'll go in there and there's, there's not one elk anywhere within five miles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so that happens sometimes. I would I would say more often than not, I can find some sort of elk somewhere. But um, like a good example, it was you know in western Wyoming, and 
success rates, harvest rates were high. And I went in there and uh, I didn't find anything. And then after the fact, I called the biologist and I was like, what is going on in here? And, and uh, actually it was a game warden that I talked to and he's like, oh yeah, that's more of a, it's a transition area or like a migration uh, area in, in that specific spot. And so you don't really have the resident elk that live there. They, they pass through there in October and the high success rates come from the rifle guys. And so you just don't see as much elk there in September. And so, as you know, with elk hunting, timing plays such a huge role on whether or not it's going to be good hunting or not, because you can be in one spot one year and have just knock your socks off, fantastic elk hunting. And then the next year at the same time, it could be completely different. There might be some elk around, uh, but it could be slow and you might not think it's that good. And so that's what makes elk hunting so tough. And I think where it differs from deer hunting is what I found so like deer hunting, you know, end of August, the first of September there, you know, when Wyoming starts September one, you can go back to the same basins every year and find bucks, but not necessarily with elk in some of these different mountain ranges. Right. So that, that plays a huge role. Elk, elk are tricky for that matter right there is that they just move around so much and the weather dictates where they're at and the rut activity in one spot might not be consistent from one year to the next. Yeah, that that plays into the saying the elk are where the elk are, right? It's it's yeah, exactly. it's a frustrating saying and you just want to kind of when somebody says that you just going to say like what the hell, but <laughs> that yeah. that doesn't help me. <laughs> but uh it it is it is so true uh cuz uh, much like you, you know, I I've I've hunted places where I go in there one year and there is elk screaming everywhere. And I'm like marking all these spots on my GPS thinking, this is good. I found a spot that and nobody else is here. And then you go back the next year and you don't see a damn thing. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's, that makes it tough. It really does. And it seems like that every mountain range is a little bit different, like on how the elk act and weather pushing them around. And so if you have goofy weather one year, an early storm, you know, you might find the elk two or three miles down the mountain from where they were last year, just depending on the weather. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Weather, water source, all, I mean, it's crazy how much stuff obviously plays into where they live. But if you really think about it, you correlate all the stuff that plays into where we as humans live. Maybe it's a little, <laughs> maybe it's a little easier to think about it that way, you know? Yep. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, so uh, it, being, you know, let's uh, back to the exact same scenario. You have Wyoming, um, which is uh, obviously easier and closer for you to scout uh, than, say, Idaho. So when it comes to wanting to scout Idaho, because there's no argument, you know, if you have the time and the resources or whatever, uh, having boots on the ground is obviously going to be beneficial. And there's, you can't, you know, no one can argue that. I think, I don't think that the, I don't think the argument in lies with it being beneficial. I think that, I think the argument in lies with, you know, somebody from say like the East coast, just not, not having the time to come and scout. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. So with you and once again, say you have that general Idaho tag, are you, are you trying to put time in scouting or are you trying to go maybe a few days before season starts so that you only make one trip? Um, what, what do you try and do in that scenario? 
Yeah, it depends on the time frame that I'm I'm hunting elk. Uh, if I hunt early, like first off opening day or opening week, then some of that August scouting uh, can be worthwhile. But I usually don't do that for elk. Um, usually, where I found, find bulls in August, they're not there in the middle of September. So their right. their summer range. And their rut range is different. And it's it's not for all cases, but just like in the Intermountain West here, I've, I've found the majority of the scenarios are like that. Like elk just aren't there in September uh, or they're not there in August rather than where they're at in September. It's just different. So scouting in August or pre-scouting is pretty pointless uh, as far as I'm concerned in most areas for elk. So I don't pre-scout elk usually. Gotcha. You know, I, how's that for a crazy answer? <laughs> no, I, I, I actually 100% agree with you. Um, there's, there's a spot that I hunted in Colorado that I walked in there one year with my buddy. The first time we had ever been there, no pre-scouting and there were elk everywhere. And, um, the following year, my wife and I, and my son, we walked in there to pre-scout it and we saw, like two, two really good bulls in velvet on the way in. And that's basically all we saw. And yep. I went in there that year and saw quite a few elk and I ended up shooting, you know, a raghorn or whatever. But, um, it just, in my mind, I was like, uh, you know, I'm either going to come in here during season and there's going to be elk all over, or I'm going to come in here and I'm going to see a few elk. And I was like, I think I'll just not, not spend my time, uh, scouting for elk, at least in this unit. I think I'd rather just, uh, you know, scout for deer or something like that, you know? Right. Right. No, exactly. And, and there's, there's always exceptions, right? I mean, Absolutely. you have to look at, at the elk herd and the distance between the summer range and where they winter and where they rut. If, if it's a big distance or if you're dealing with a big mountain range, then yeah, it's going to be super difficult to keep tabs on them. But if you're dealing with a small mountain range or a, a mountain even, and you know, they winter at the base of the mountain and they summer at the top of the mountain, usually you can find them in between, but some things I'll look for kind of, you know, thinking about it is if I'm hunting an area or if I'm deer hunting before elk season and I see like wallows from last year or um, like broomers, like rub trees, right? Those are probably like the biggest factors that I pay attention to where, okay, there's a bunch of rub trees here and broomers that, you know, maybe they rut here and this could be a spot to check. So there are little, you know, keys to that, uh, that I'll keep my eye on, but yeah, I just scouting is just uh, kind of pointless for elk. Usually, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of a relief to be on the same page because I'm like I'm like man, there's some people out there that are putting a lot of time into scouting elk, and I think once again, like you say, there's the exception. You know, I watch say like Ryan Carter, for instance, with DC Outfitters. That guy puts a ton of time into scouting elk, hanging cameras, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yep. But he's also in a few units he's in premier units and and for him and their hunting style and the clients and all that kind of stuff that is obviously clearly 100 percent paying off 
Um, right. Where me and you, where we might go hunt a general unit where everybody and their dog is out there walking around. Um, we're probably going to get there and we're going to try and hunt where the hunters aren't. And chances are the elk are going to be where the hunters aren't also. Right. Um, so it's, <laughs> Like you say, there. I, I agree with you completely. There's definitely an exception and a time and a place for it, um, but for definitely the topic that we're talking about and and the the type of hunting that we're doing, um, I agree with you. I just don't. I just don't know that there's much point. <laughs> right. Eight miles deep on horseback, wall tents in September, chasing elk with archery equipment. That is what dreams are made of. Outdoor Edge is giving away a free Colorado elk hunt. To enter the drawing, go to OutdoorEdge.com and click on Elk Hunt Giveaway. Again, that is OutdoorEdge.com and click on Elk Hunt Giveaway. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, no, exactly. And you, you bring up a good point with that because a lot of those Utah units that are, you know, very limited and, and even, you know, in Wyoming and Montana, there's units too, limited entry stuff where, you know, the, the bulls might be fairly close in proximity to the summer range of the cows. And so they rut kind of in the same area in winter in the same type of area, uh, like the breaks in Montana, for example, they don't really have a, a winter range and a summer range. I mean, there's no like mountain ranges. They don't go up high. You know, they're just, they move around their nomadic animals in the breaks, but there's, there's no definite ranges to focus on. And this is a good example. Just a few days ago, I was up in the, the break scouting and, you know, this unit, my, my brother drew it and, you know, it's a highly revered unit. It should be great hunting. And I, I go in there and there is no elk. You know, there's, I'm like, there's no elk in here at all. Like, and this is supposed to be a good area. And I'm like, scratching my head and I'm like, man, maybe it could be one of these migratory or the, the nomadic scenarios where these bulls move in because I was finding cows and everything. I'm like, they got to be here. And I, I talked to a buddy that ended up hunting that a couple of years prior and he gave me some great information, but he's like, yeah, there's, there's no bulls in there in August. You won't find hardly anything in there, but for whatever reason, September 1st rolls around and all of a sudden bulls are popping up everywhere. So he's like, yeah, that's just the way it is up there. So good luck getting, you know, big bulls on trail cam. And in August, it probably isn't going to happen. They show up in September and that's what you have to work with. So kind of interesting. Like I say, every region or every state and mountain range just is a little bit different. Right. And to, and to that point, um, something that I've noticed is, is like you say, you go there in August and, there may be water all over, right? But come September, there's only water in a few spots. And then all of a sudden that unit that you're in, maybe it's not a very big unit, is where the water is. And bam, there's your elk, you know? Yep. 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 They all they follow the water. Just there's so much that can change. That's why I once again go back to why it's so difficult is that they're just so nomadic and things change so much and it's not just a, a static behavior more so like you know a high country mule deer right right absolutely well so kind of now moving forward you have your your area your area picked out um 
and you know where you're going to go. You head in there. And what, I, what I'd like to do is kind of talk briefly on the way you're going to approach, approach and hunt your areas. Um, so say you walk in there and you're he hearing bugling. How you would hunt that, but opposed to that, you walk in there and you've seen elk. You know there's elk there, but they're completely silent. Um, and how you would approach that, because I, I don't know about you, but I, I probably see more questions either directed at me or other people or surrounding how do you hunt when nothing's making noise almost than I do how do you hunt when they're bugling their head off. You know, so with those two scenarios, how do you approach each of those and what would, what do you do in, in the instance of each of them? Uh -huh, uh -huh. So just kind of the areas that I hunt, my tactics have evolved over the last 10 years. And to answer that, you know, if you're hunting a timbered area and they're not bugling, your odds just go down the tank so much. <laughs> and you're just like, okay, so my option is to sit on a water hole uh, sit on a trail, which, you know, may or may not produce, but those are like out of your control on whether or not they're going to produce or not. So quite frankly, my direct answer to that is I hunt open country. And so if the elk aren't bugling, I can still see them. They still got to eat. They still come out into the meadows or into the open to feed, whether it's sagebrush country or ag country they're hitting the egg fields and then moving out into the sagebrush or moving up into the timber uh, to bed. I can see them. They don't have to be bugling. And so that, that's, that's the, the most direct answer. I stay out of the thick, heavy timber country. Um, just odds are better at killing elk every year. If you just stay out of that stuff, uh, you can obviously hunt the thick stuff and have great success. And I've killed enough bulls in the thick timber uh, when they're bugling hard, but they're not bugling hard all September. So, uh, you gotta adapt to that. And yeah, that's the direct answer. That's the key to success right there. As far as I'm concerned. Right. And, and I'm, I, again, you know, you know, Dan, who knows, maybe, maybe you just like after this, we've became best friends and we might have to do karate in the garage, you know, cause, <laughs> cause I, I just, I, once again, I couldn't agree with you more. There's times when I will hunt dark timber and I will still hunt through the dark timber. Um, but it there again, much like you, if there's spots that I, there, cause there are several spots that I hunt where it's like sagebrush. Right. Um, and if, that is holding elk, then I'll spend my time hunting there. Um, but there's not always elk there. So when oh. I go there and there's not elk there, then, then I'm, you know, not going to just sit at home and I'll try and still hunt through the dark timber or whatever else. Um, and, and what I think is interesting about that is, is it's crazy how much dark timber and steep country swallows sound. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, you could be 300 yards away or 500 yards away and not be able to hear an elk bugle if it's really thick, dark timber. And same with really steep country, you know, they, they could, as the way the bird flies, they could be 200 yards away, but if they're up over and in the bottom of the next one, you're probably not going to hear them. And yep. so I've found that still hunting, uh, through, through dark timber you know, I'll be going along and then all of a sudden I'll start hearing elk and it's like, wow, how, how did I not hear these 
150 yards ago. And I think, like I say, I think it's just crazy how much terrain can swallow sound. And once you kind of get in there, you, you might be amazed at what you hear. And then before you know it, you're able to start changing up your hunting tactics because now you can hear elk. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you said it, uh, when I, I try to combat that or, you know, use my ears more, I'll try to just get on a vantage point right. and just, just listen and have that direct ear shot to as much country as you can possibly get your ears on if it's all timbered to help me pinpoint because wandering around in the timber like that is it's so difficult. And yeah, you could very easily walk by a rut fest because you can't hear over the next hill. Yeah. And, and, and so, yep. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's so true. And, and one thing, uh, a tip that, could be for anyone listening is if you have a camera with you and you have a shotgun microphone that you can change the amount of gain the shotgun microphone has. I tell you what, if you put that shotgun microphone on 20 plus decibels and you put some headphones in, it's amazing what you hear. <laughs> Absolutely. There you go. Yep. Uh, it's kind of weird though. You don't, you can't really tell exactly where the sound is coming from. So that kind of makes it a little odd, but um, but yeah, right. Uh, so with, you know, uh, with the spot and stock style of hunting, um, do you find yourself wholeheartedly going into spot and stock mode? Meaning you see a group of say 30 elk, you, the, the bull is something you want to go after. So you're on your way over there and you are silent all the way up until the shot. Or do you try and get in, you know? 80 yards and then do some sort of calling. Um, how, how do you kind of approach that? Yeah. I never rely on calling and I never <laughs> want to tell that bull that I'm there. Right. If I don't have to. Right. So I hunt them like mule deer. If, cool. if I can get up close and get an arrow in one without saying a word to him, I'll do that every time. Right. If I, have a hurdle or, you know, you have some sort of natural barrier or something to work with. I'll get in close and maybe hit a call, uh, a challenge beagle to them, or uh, maybe a calf call. Uh, I'll do that. But I don't like calling unless I have to, when it comes down to killing them. Um, but like in thick country and, and, you know, I get in close and throw out a, you know, challenge bugle or a bull calling cows bugle. Uh, if they're fired up, they usually come in. Gotcha. Um, if, 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 if you're using that terrain or the natural barrier, you know, to your advantage, because, you know, these elk, they're, they're so keen. They're, they have their ability to just pinpoint where you're calling from is incredible. And so you need terrain, you need something to get them to come over and at least look and see where that call is coming from because they'll believe their ears number one, but they'll believe their eyes over their ears if they can see where that call is coming from. And so if you're calling on the backside of a, a finger Ridge, a bull will come up to the Ridge and look down to where you're calling from to see where that call is co coming from. 
And if he doesn't see anything down there, he's probably not going to come if he can see. And right. so that's why, you know, you set up knowing that he's going to come to the crest or to a natural barrier and, and be able to look. And if he does come to that spot, you're ready for the shot. Yeah. Yeah. I, <clears throat> that, that you couldn't have said that any better. I, uh, literally almost that exact scenario that you're talking about. I had a few years back, I was hunting up out of Cody. Um, and this bull was coming across the opposite side towards me. And I, much like you just said, they, they can pinpoint sound so well. So I positioned myself in a saddle. And as soon as he came out of sight, I walked, I don't know, 20 or 30 yards away. I made a couple of cow calls and then I went back to where I was set up and literally as expected and as I was hoping, cause it wouldn't have worked for the dam if I wouldn't, have, you know, um, but literally exactly what you were saying. He came over that saddle headed towards the last cow call that he had heard, which made it to where he was, you know, slightly quartering to me, but plenty well to make a shot and all of his attention was over there and it's just insane how well they can pinpoint sound like it's crazy and yeah i i laughed i the reason i laughed when you're like well i i just don't make a sound and i pretty much spot and stalk them like Mueller is because i again literally the exact same way i i'm not good at calling i'm really not but I am good at yeah. spot and stock and yeah. I, I know, you know, playing into my strengths. I know that if I just shut up and don't make a sound, I have pretty good chances of getting in close enough to make it happen. And uh, so it's just funny. Cause I, I don't, I can't tell you how many times people have asked me, well, what do you do? And I say, well, I, I spot and stock them like I do a mule deer. <laughs> so that was, yep. yeah, yeah, that was cool. No, absolutely. There's, yeah, there's no reason to make a sound if they're, coming in or or if you can see them and sneak up on them heck yeah but it's funny as as we're talking i was thinking about my wyoming hunt last year and it was totally different than any other hunt i've ever been on i was in the backcountry and these elk they don't get a ton of pressure during bow season and i was cow calling which i never cow call (laughs) just normal cow call but i was cow calling because they they're not afraid of horses back there. Okay. And it was, it was just like, right, right at the peak of the, like, I just caught them on the right day when they're just kind of rut crazy. And I had a couple tan horses and <laughs> I cow called and elk they're they're walking up to me. That is so, so crazy. Yeah. There's always an exception. Right. But but this was a pretty rare experience. This wasn't normal elk behavior. This episode is going to be out on beyond the grid this weekend, actually on YouTube. Awesome. But it's, it's just, it's a different hunt. The elk were acting completely different. You know, you got a big 360 bull that had a, a little spike bugle. That's another one. You can't judge a bull by his bugle at all. 100%. But yeah, it's just very interesting. There's always an exception to every rule or anything that we're talking about. Yeah, you you can cow call them in. Yeah, you can bugle them in. Yeah, you can be successful in in the timber. <laughs> but you know, we're we're talking on the big scale and the in the grand scheme of things in general. You know what's worked the best for us. That's kind of what we're referring to. Just so nobody is confused by that. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I guess kind of the, the last question before we wrap this up that I have, is, you know, pertaining to elk is, do you, do you try and shoot a, 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 like a different archery setup for your elk hunting as opposed to maybe mule deer or antelope, or do you just try and keep it the same across the board for consistency and practice purposes? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I've kind of, my setup has evolved over the years. Um, I, I keep it all the same. Cool. And it's, it's based on my specs and my setup. You know, I'm 29 inch draw, 70 pounds or 75 pounds or 80, depends on the year. So I have plenty of power, right? And and so anything I can, I'm going to shoot an antelope with, I'll shoot an elk with. And I guess I could go to a lighter arrow for antelope hunting per se. But, you know, I've shot elk with a 365 grain arrow, total arrow, which is super light. And I've shot elk with 490 grain total weight arrow and everywhere in between. And I've kind of settled with uh, somewhere in the 465 grain total weight. Uh, I don't like a super heavy arrow because I shoot a single pin slider and I don't want too big of an arc or, or too much trajectory on my arrow flight. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's all about trade-offs. You're, the heavier arrow, the quieter your bow is, but you lose speed, right? right. And then you shoot a 400 grain arrow, which is, super flat shooting and super fast and your sight tape is super close together on with your single pin slider. And you, you know, you use a little bit of Kentucky windage and you're going <laughs> to kill them because you're, you're set up shooting so fast. And so, yeah, it's just a matter of playing with it and, and figuring out what works the best for you. But yeah, for me, you know, whether I'm in four thirty to four sixty-five, I'll, I'll, set it up depends on what arrow I'm shooting that year somewhere in there is fine and dandy. And I keep, um, the same setup and the same arrows and the same broadheads for all species for that fall. Gotcha. Cool. Well, wicked. Well, Dan, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out today to hop on the podcast. I've enjoyed our conversation and at some point, you know, later on in the season or maybe after season, it would be great to have you, have you back on and discuss the season and trials and tribulations and, and, all that, all that good stuff. Yeah, for sure. No, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, I always enjoy talking out a little passion there going. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Well, uh, thanks again. Yeah, you bet. Zach. Thank you for listening in. Be sure to like comment, subscribe, and share. We hope to have you tuning in for the next episode.